This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. Your town or city may have a Reads program, community reading programs, or One City, One Book programs. Try to get everyone in a city or community to read and discuss the same book. The first such program was in Seattle, Washington in 1998. The Amsterdam, New York Free Library has such a community literacy effort called Amsterdam Reads, which started in 2007. In Amsterdam each summer, a committee meets to nominate five books. The community votes in the fall and selects the book for the following year. Activities related to the book are then held throughout that year. The Amsterdam Reads book for 2017 is A Fall of Marigolds, A Fall of Marigolds by Susan Meisner, who juxtaposes the lives of two women who experience major tragic events in different times. One is a nurse named Clara, who witnessed the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire in New York City in 1911. The factory produced women's blouses, which were known then as shirtwaists. Taryn, the other woman in the novel, works in a high-end fabric store, and she lost her husband in the terrorist attack on New York's World Trade Towers on September 11, 2001. The novel's title, A Fall of Marigolds, refers to the design of a beautiful scarf with marigolds pictured on it that is passed down through the generations connecting the two women. Amsterdam Reads invited two local historians and an eyewitness to history to provide background for a discussion of the book. Their program was held in January at the Amsterdam Library. Doug Kaufman is a well-respected and popular history teacher at Amsterdam High School. Doug Kaufman researched the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire in New York City and spoke about that tragic event from 1911 in this interview. Well, on March 25th, 1911, 500 people went to the Ash Building in Lower East Side of Manhattan, and 146 of them died. 129 of them were women, 17 men. Many of those who died were on the ninth floor. The fire started on the 8th floor. The 8th floor was able to evacuate some of their people. They called the 10th floor, where management was. They were able to evacuate their people by dropping a ladder from the New York University building over to the 10th floor. But the 9th floor people were not warned. There were about 300 people on the 9th floor. There was two elevators. One of the elevators wasn't working. There was two stairways. One of the stairways was blocked. For the stairway that wasn't blocked... The door opened in. The stairway was only two and a half feet wide. Everyone was packed together, and there was mass panic and difficulty leaving. When the fire spread so quickly, some were forced, because of the flames, to jump from the building, from the ninth floor, and many of them died from falling from the building. And you gave uh, graphic accounts of the of the falls. Well, I mean, I, and I wasn't sure I quite grasped it. People thought that they were throwing uh, cloth or garments out, but uh, it, it was just people, or were they wrapping themselves in, in, the, in the cloth? No, they were just people. But back then, you have to think about, particularly with young women, that there was a lot of layers to the clothing, things like that. This is March. 
right, for when this happened. But people would look up and they would think they were seeing bundles of clothes because this was a, a, a factory that, you know, made clothing. So they thought they were saving some of the clothes. But with the sound that hit the ground, the thud noise, as described by one reporter, when they hit the ground, let them knew that it was much worse than this. Not to mention looking up and seeing people at the windows, sometimes girls holding hands together when they jumped, some of them crossing themselves, some of them kissing uh, one of their friends before they leaped, trying to stay upright as they leaped, Uh, the horrified people who gathered around uh, to watch as within 18 minutes uh, the fire ripped through three floors of the ash building. And the workers were really packed into the work floors. That was one of the worst parts of this. The way in which they set this up is hard to describe, but they have set up long tables where literally everyone is next to each other, and then their backs are to other long tables with other rows of other people working with their backs to each other. So that when the fire started and they jumped out, jumped up, they can't all get out at the same time, which was part of the problem with how they set it up. They tried to pack in as many sheens as as possible, 276 machines on the ninth floor, and that means at least that many people, right? And remember, these people had worked a 60-hour work week. These people were uh, coming in on a Saturday for their pay and to work another 12 hours for their 72-hour work week, and this is what happened. Were the owners of the of the factory who survived, I understand, they were in, the, one of them anyway, was in the building, uh, but they were never, were they ever punished for the failings of this, uh, you know, for fire safety, if you will. Uh, Max Blank is one of them. The other one is Isaac Harris. Both of them were on the 10th floor when the 10th floor received the call, and both of them were able to go to NYU University, New York University, in order to escape the fire. They were prosecuted. There were charges of manslaughter brought against them. There was accusations that they had blocked one of those doors on purpose, something that was never proven at the trial. The problem with the trial was that they had a very good lawyer. They're both very rich. They were able to uh, manipulate what evidence was placed by making sure that all evidence was placed in English when there were many immigrant uh, girls, witnesses who had a limited vocabulary. Uh, Not only that, the judge of this case had previously himself, as a tenement owner, had been accused of a fire at a tenement and had gone through his own prosecution, so was particularly sympathetic to both of the owners of the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. The building, and maybe you said this already, survived. I mean, in fact, the building is still there. The building still exists on the cover of uh, corner of Washington Square and Green Street. There is a marker there on the building that was put up in 1961 to commemorate the 50th anniversary of when these people lost their lives. Former Labor Secretary Francis Perkins was there for the dedication ceremony, someone who had witnessed the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire when it occurred on March 25, 1911. Perkins was there. Perkins was there witnessing it, and something that I didn't say in this group was that particularly frightening to her was when some of the girls jumped, on one side of the building there was an iron wrought fence, and that some of the girls were impaled on that fence. And that's one of her horrors that she particularly remembers frightening her so much. Remember, she's going to be on a committee for uh, public safety, and then she's going to go on to be the first woman to be appointed uh, a cabinet leader as uh, Franklin Dono Roosevelt appoints her to be Secretary of Labor. Did the fire have anything to do with labor unions and strikes and protests? 
Just in 1909, two years before this fire, these very girls had gone on strike. It wasn't over fire regulations or safety regulations. It was for the basic bread and butter issues that most people were worked about, worried about. It was about a 20% pay increase. But the owners had shut down the strike. They had hired um, private security to be spies and look at who the strike leaders were. They had hired private security to actually uh, harass and beat up some of the strikers themselves so that some of the police that had been called in in 1909 to break up the strike were the very police who were on the scene in 1911 to carry the bodies away. And you say the owners reopened and uh, started uh, manufacturing again. Uh, And did they put in any uh, safety improvements? One of the things is that when 1913, New York State passed 25 laws that basically addressed every issue of the Triangle Shirt Waste Factory fire. So once those regulations are put in place, they go through and actually check. Now, both the owners had a large insurance settlement. The ash building in itself was pretty much cleared out in the 8th, 9th, and 10th floors, and they are open and they are operating their business. Not only that, the 1913 laws passed actually have fire regulations. Fire inspectors come into the ash building the very building where this had occurred two years earlier and see another locked door. And these two people are arrested again for blocking the door and they face fines for, of course, their blocked door after what had happened before. That's Doug Kaufman, history teacher at Amsterdam High School. You can find him on Facebook. More history in a moment. The 2017 Fund Drive is now underway to support the Historians Podcast. Your donation at GoFundMe.com forward slash historians 2017 helps cover technical costs and other production expenses. Here's how to donate by mail. Make the check out to me, Bob Cudmore. Send the check to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York. That's 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Thank you very much. On this episode of the Historian's Podcast, we're focusing on the historical background to the novel A Fall of Marigolds by Susan Meisner that juxtaposes the lives of two women who experience major tragic events at different times. One is a nurse named Clara, who witnesses the Triangle Shirtwaist factory fire in 1911 in New York City. And Taryn, the other woman, lost her husband in the terrorist attack on the World Trade Towers on September 11, 2001. The novel is the 2017 Book of the Year for Amsterdam Reads, a community reading program. Amsterdam's city historian Robert von Hasselen spoke at a gathering at the city library on Amsterdam's connection to the terrorist attack that killed thousands and destroyed the Twin Towers of the World Trade Center in 2001. Von Hasselen noted that one of the airplanes in the attack had been commandeered by Islamic extremist terrorists early in the flight from Boston that was scheduled to head for the American West Coast. It's believed that the jetliner turned south toward New York City as it passed over Amsterdam, New York. Von Hasselen, a retired lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army, also described his work in counterterrorism and his roots in the New York City area. 
He then described the planning that went into Amsterdam's 9-11 memorial, located at the city's Riverlink Park along the Mohawk River. The memorial, dedicated in 2015, includes a beam salvaged from the North Tower of the World Trade Center, the tower that was hit by the passenger jet that apparently turned south over Amsterdam. The final speaker at the Amsterdam Reads program was Stephen Jankowski of Broadalbin. On September 11, 2001, Steve Jankowski was recently in love and living with his future wife in New Jersey. He worked in Lower Manhattan, and his typical weekday commute took him to a commuter train station underneath the World Trade Center. Here is Steve Jankowski. What I did was I took my commute involved going from the New Jersey Transit train that was went from Hoboken uh, to the uh, I would take the PATH train into the World Trade Center on a daily basis. Uh, so I did not work there. I worked at 100 Wall Street, probably half mile away. Um, but the uh, what I did was I ended up taking the PATH train into the bottom of the World Trade Center and. Little, to, little did I know, but the first plane had actually hit uh, when I was commuting into the World Trade Center. Um, so I continued with my commute as normal. I didn't even know that anything had occurred that was unusual. I left the World Trade Center, and as I was leaving the World Trade Center, that's when it became very apparent something was wrong. You said you could smell something? or The smell, was that really wasn't more toward that. Oh, this smell, yes. That what there was, there was a smell of something burning when I was at the ground level. And my thought was, I was just thinking to myself that maybe it was a small fire in a store or something. And I remember seeing people running by me, and I remember just thinking that people were easily scared, you know, so what's a little fire? And I was very calm and frankly relaxed. Um, but when I was when I left and I was opening up the doors uh, of the World Trade Center to go out to the streets in Manhattan, you could just see there was papers and ash coming down from the sky, and I knew there was something wrong. Um, and that's I had my first do, uh, dose of adrenaline, adrenaline where my eyes just opened, and I ran and stopped and asked the first person I saw that you know what occurred, and uh, surprisingly. Um, or maybe not surprisingly, that person told me that a small plane it hit. They really didn't give me an accurate description of what occurred. Maybe I, I also have a recollection. Maybe it was a, a helicopter, but it wasn't that a jumbo jet had, full of fuel had ran into the World Trade Center. And you said uh, in the talk to the to the group, and you can hear them in the in the background in our conversation. Uh, they were just, break, just breaking up. Um, that most people, when you in these initial minutes, were just kind of standing there watching the what was happening. But you almost immediately thought differently. That's correct. Um, I remember looking around after asking what occurred, and you know, seeing people standing. And as that person was explaining to me what they thought had occurred there, uh, the second plane hit, and I felt the heat. I did not see it. I felt the heat from the, from the explosion on my back. My thought was that was some sort of secondary explosion, so this is a bad fire, and maybe these towers are going to fall over. You know, not towers. Tower is going to fall over. And being their height, I was thinking that they might take out all of downtown Manhattan, you know, including where I worked. 
So instead of going to work, my thought was to get out of there. Um, you know, it's very self-preservation thought process. And that's what I did. And I remember just running through like crowds of people that were mostly watching. There was a few people that I could see that were thinking the same thing I was or presumed thinking the same thing I was. You know, they were, they were as well running and leaving where the, I was in the vast minority. And in fact, you had run as far as maybe like Midtown before the first tower collapsed. Yeah, I, I had a pretty good run going. I didn't really stop because I was afraid if I stopped that you know if something fell over, I would be gone. Um, so I was probably I would guess around 55th, 56th Street by the time the first tower fell. And I remember what stopped me was uh, basically people were there was they stopped and they were pointing, and I turned around and I saw the first tower that collapsed fall and i saw that i and i turned and i i felt a little bit of tears in my eyes thinking that you know people that i knew loved where i worked at was gone and i just kept on running because i was you know i didn't i wanted to get as far away as i could to safety you never or were you engulfed in this uh, cloud of dust that took place never i was out of there uh, well before any collapse occurred because when the first tower collapsed is when the dust occurred and i was in the 50s by the time that happened so that i was long out of that situation. you mentioned that you were uh, moved by the how the f- firefighters or an emergency responders appeared on their as they were on their trucks going to the scene that's true uh, I remember when I was first started running. Uh, so here I am running, trying to save myself because I feel my life is in danger. And contrast that with here comes the fire trucks. And there's men in their fire uniforms on the outside of these trucks riding into this you know, devastation, essentially. Like the situation that their lives are very much... Uh, at risk, and I remember seeing their faces. That's what really stuck out at me, was the the seriousness, holding their composure, bravery, uh, and also fear through that bravery. You know, they were afraid, but they did their duty regardless and went in there to try and help and save lives and uh, attempt to put out a fire in an unreal situation. And you were young. I think we thought uh, that you were about 27, uh, recently in love, if you will. And you were, wanted to get back to New Jersey where you were living with your fiance, or get back to her. Uh, and so at some point you accosted somebody on the street uh, with a cell phone. That's correct. There was uh, what there was. Um, There's a tremendous amount of unity amongst the people, where which was unusual for New York City. You generally don't pay much attention to the person next to you, which was part of the amazing thing about the city. Um, but at that time, you know, we, there was no phone calls that could be made. You know, I, well, certainly free a cell phone, which I was trying to use um, because the, a lot of the cell towers were down. So I, I did see someone that had, I was talking on a cell phone and I really wanted to be able to call uh, my now wife and tell her that I was okay. And so I asked that person if I could use their cell phone. It turns out they're from Miami, um, so and they let me use it, and I was able to make a very patchy call to my wife's work uh, where I got a coworker, and they were able to contact 
her and let her know that I was alive, which was which I was you know, happy to be able to tell her that. And how did you leave Manhattan that night, or did you? Uh, that night, yeah, I did leave that night. It was later, 10, 11 o'clock. Um, I'd met up uh, with some people from work after, but we kind of waited out the lines of the ferry because that was the only way to, that I knew of, at least to really get back. I was to take a ferry back to New Jersey. Uh, so uh, I did take a ferry back to New Jersey and you know, got home that night by ferry, and uh, and then my wife came. Well, she was my girlfriend at the time. Um, uh, took me home. And but while, before you went on the ferry, at some point you stopped in a bar and where there was a television, so you saw the, the, the coverage, and you were moved... Uh, uh, you know, in two different directions by two things that you mentioned. You were moved by President Bush's speech, and also you were angered when you saw people in other parts of the world uh, celebrating this attack. Absolutely. Uh, as part of the coverage, uh, President Bush gave his first you know, a speech afterward, and I don't remember the words he said, but uh, they were very powerful because it was... Uh, we're, he was moving in a strong response it was a, a way uh, you know that you know the people that did this are not going to be they're not going to get away with it essentially and that was very uh, everyone in that bar uh felt those things it was cheering and uh, his words were powerful and resonated with everyone there um i also remember seeing scenes of people in the Middle East particularly, that were celebrating, you know, devastation, death of innocent people on a senseless attack. And they're in the streets celebrating like it's the biggest party in the world. And uh, I, don't, I'm not, I don't still hang on to that anger. It's not something I think of on a daily basis. But when I recall it, I remember my emotions and how I felt. And it was, uh, it was, it was uh, very hurtful. And, you know, how, how could these people be celebrating uh, an attack on innocent people. And initially you went back to work even after a while in back in Manhattan, but as life has moved on, you've moved away from the city of New York and even New Jersey where you were uh, and worked for your family insurance agency, Jankowski, I believe, in in agency in, in Broad Alban. You hear that, you know, we upstaters often... No, it seems like we could notice that that we people were coming back up here. You know, uh, why why did that happen for you? Uh, for me, it was pretty easy. I mean, I was the reason why I left. You know, I think a lot of people that didn't leave, they were from the city. That was their home. Um, where me, I was a person that went there to chase my dreams, um, and you know, I as mentioned, I just fell in love with my now wife. And so I was very hopeful for the future, and I wanted to build a life with her. Um, I did not have a bond or an attachment. I loved the city. I still love the city. Uh, it's an amazing place. Um, but when I, I was very afraid uh, and nervous, like if there was a loud noise that something would drop, like from where they were working on the World Trade Center, I would think it's a bomb. You know, I was afraid that there was going to be uh, some another attack. You know, at the time there there was anthrax threats. There was, you know, seemingly planes falling out of the sky because there was a plane crash shortly after that. Perhaps in November of 2001, or I'm reckoning to my best. But there was all these things that were happening. It's like, and I felt my life was very much in danger. So uh, I did leave there and move to uh, 
Pittsfield, Massachusetts, worked for KB Toys as an accountant. <laughs> uh, so that's why I left and how I left. And that was December of 2001 when I started working at KB Toys. Today, Steve Jankowski lives and works in Broad Alban, New York, at his family's insurance company, the Jankowski Agency. You can find more information on Amsterdam Reads at the website of the Amsterdam Free Library. Among other events planned for 2017 is a Skype interview, a Skype interview with author Susan Meisner about her novel, A Fall of Marigolds. I used to write fictional stories about Nero, a declining mill town in upstate New York. A collection of these stories are found as podcasts on my website, bobcudmore.com. The following story appeared as a newspaper column in early October of 2001. It's called A Tax Aftermath Lingers in Nero. The a way we avoid hearing unpleasant news in upstate New York is to employ the run-on phrase, How you doing, good? with only the slightest hint of a question. We don't want to hear bad news. People usually take the hint and reply, Pretty good, or can't complain. If you don't say, How you doing, good? However, the person you have met can launch into tales of illness, death, or financial reversal. People in Nero, New York, haven't had the heart to cut off too many tales of woe by saying, How you doing, good? for a month. Everyone has been affected by the events of September 11th, although the World Trade Center is over a 100 miles from the vacant factories and burned-out buildings of Nero. Life has taken on new purpose in some ways. More people are attending the big downtown church. Organizations ranging from the high-end service clubs to the Sons of St. Adelbardio are collecting for New York City relief. People who sometimes resent cops and firemen gave generously when local firemen collected for their brothers by approaching cars waiting in traffic on the highway in front of the big box stores outside of town. American flags have added color to Nero's vacant store windows. At the Four Clover Tavern, Stan the bartender has a big flag covering over most of the mirror in the bar. He wears a flag-decorated T-shirt that says, United We Stand. WNRO talk show host Mike Van Wilson is in his glory, screaming at the start of each show, Dead or Alive, a reference to what should be done about the capture of terrorist Osama bin Laden. Nero's new immigrants are glad they speak Spanish and the languages of the Balkans, not Arabic. People hate to say it, but they're a little wary of the Middle Eastern gentleman who operates the convenience store. He's a little wary of his customers as well. Marty the Bull, the retired union leader, thinks the Mafia, the Bloods, the Crips, and other ethnic gangs should get together for the good of the country. We did it in World War II, Marty says. Terrorism is bad for everybody. Disease Cotter, the retired sock mill worker, is apprehensive about his pending annual airplane trip to the Las Vegas casinos, but he's decided to go because he already paid for the flight. The triumph of greed over fear. At the Clever Cut Salon, beautician Carla Gonzalez sometimes cries as she colors her hair, 
or collars hair of her customers and does permanence. A friend of her son died September 11th in Lower Manhattan. Now Carla's boy is enlisting in the Army. He wants to be in the Special Forces. Wanda Tamburino, constituent problem fixer for Nero's popular congressman, has been hanging out at the Four Clover Tavern. She told the bartender, Stan, we aren't as bad off as we could be. We're doing well up here, she said, compared to those souls who died in New York and Washington. Life may not be great, but at least it's still going on. Carla Gonzalez walked in the bar, and Wanda called to her, Hey, Carla, how you doing? Good? This has been the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.